The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Zen practitioner, and when we sit, we sit facing the wall. And so even when I teach, I look at backs. And wow, this is so, you guys, I was, I remembered, um, um, I, I sat a winter Vipassana retreat, and you know the way it's cold and all the Vipassana students wrap themselves up in blankets, so just their little heads are sticking out. And Sylvia Borstein was there, and she said that we all looked like little pots of soup that were cooking. <laughs> so I couldn't get you guys into pots of soup. You, you don't look like pots of soup, but you look beautiful. That was really, that was fun. <clears throat> I have a friend who says that the only, the only reason, the only, um, the only thing that any of us could try to accomplish in giving a talk is to encourage us in our practice. And so I state that, I state my intention to encourage you in your practice and encourage me in my practice. And I think that the question, the question is, what did we just do? What is it to sit like little pots of soup or little heads of lettuce or whatever we are for 45 minutes? This is unusual. I also was remembering that when I began going on meditation retreats, I would lie to my coworkers. I'd say, I'm going to Palm Springs. And then on the break, you know, I'd try to get a tan so I could come back from Palm Springs tan. I was going to Joshua Tree and sitting and walking. So, um, so what is this unusual activity? It does seem that sitting still, as we just did, goes against the modern world, doesn't it? Aren't we just all taught to keep moving and keep shopping and keep buying new technology? And, um, and I can't, you know, I've been, um, I've been, what did I just, oh, I just read a book about Henry VIII. So, it, it isn't true that this uh, tendency to distraction is new. I think people have always been this way. Uh, so I could say that I think that people have always needed an opportunity to sit down for a while. Just sit down and encouragement to sit down. But isn't this meditation, I mean, what is at best, it's boring, right? <laughs> and at worst, it's really difficult. At worst, what am I doing in meditation but facing the very things that I go to so much trouble to avoid? Isn't that what we're doing? And isn't that, in fact, where the magic is? The only thing, of course, that's harder than meditating, hmm, um, as we know, the only thing harder than meditating is suffering. So sometimes I give meditation instruction at Zen Center on a Saturday morning. It'll be a beautiful day, and it's, it's early. You know, in Zen, everything is so damned early. It's like, a, I don't know, a quarter to eight on a Saturday morning, something like that. 
And I like to start by looking at all the eager people who think they want to learn how to meditate. And I say, I'm so sorry for your suffering. I'm so sorry for whatever brought you here today. <laughs> so, um, so what I can say is that, in fact, in my experience, what we just did is the antidote to suffering. Not the only one. Now, I heard Leonard Cohen, right, Rinzai Zen student. I heard Leonard Cohen in a wonderful interview with Terry Gross. And Terry Gross said, you know, Zen, what's up with that? And, um, and Leonard Cohen said, he said, there was a part of me that Western psychology couldn't touch. I said, well, thank you, Leonard, right on. Because I tried therapy, <laughs> a lot of therapy, and there still was something. I am one of the people who came to um, meditation through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, you know, ask me what I know about grasping and desire. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I know so much about it, it almost killed me, and I'm sure there are others other 12-steppers here in the room. And when I first got sober, I went back to Christianity, and that was great. I heard forgiveness for sins, and I was really grateful to work that. There was a wonderful priest in the church where I settled, and um, more than once I heard him talk about Jesus' final lesson to his disciples. And Jesus comes to the guys and he says, well, time's up. You know, got to go get crucified now. And the disciples say, wait, wait. What, um, uh, could you sum it up for us? We've, we've been, <laughs> we've really been trying to understand what you're talking about. But could you, you know, what, what? And, and Jesus, I love it when Jesus gets impatient. And he says, I've been telling you this. The thing I've been telling you right from the start is love one another. So I would be sitting in a chair in the Christian church, and I'd want to raise my hand and say, how? I would love to be loving. I knew that my anger and my judgmental nature and my impatience were causing a lot of trouble in my life. Probably did a lot of drinking over those qualities, but now, <laughs> without anesthetic, extremely painful how. In that tradition, I was given a really powerful force outside of myself, and I'd ask for help. And I did that. You know, I, I just, I prayed up a storm. So when I was about nine years sober, and the suffering, the separation from others, the invisible wall between me and the people who I wanted to love and be loved by was just killing me to the point where I thought, I, what, do I, am I going to have to drink again? This is too painful. I mean, I didn't exactly think it like that. <laughs> so I went back to the steps, the magnificent steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is there anything I missed? And I saw the word meditation, and I had tried meditating but, you know, with a mind like mine, you wouldn't meditate either. <laughs> Turn off the radio and close your eyes. Ah! 
so I heard about James Barras, right? One of the, he's now one of the Spirit Rock teachers, and I went to his wonderful, and it's all the same. They're all giving the same wonderful six-week course in how to meditate. And I began meditating, not because I liked it. I found it very uncomfortable. <laughs> I found it very unpleasant. <laughs> oh, just the memory. But, but the teachings, and I remember in that six-week course, you know, James taught the Four Noble Truths. And to hear someone say, the fact is that suffering is built into human existence. Hallelujah. Thank you. And then to say the cause of that suffering is our attachment, our grasping. Hmm. And there's a solution, and the solution is offered. The fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. And what we just did is part of the Eightfold Path, meditating. I um, always remained in a sitting group, because if I wasn't in a sitting group, I didn't sit. So I got that. I always had to be in a group. And for a long time, I was in Jack's Monday night group, which was great. And for a long time, I sat for 45 minutes thinking about myself and what I didn't have that I wanted as the price I had to pay to hear the teachings. It's not unusual in Alcoholics Anonymous to hear someone say that they felt that when the instruction book to life was handed out, they were behind the door and they missed it. So I felt in those great teachings, and Jack would, he'd talk about sex, and he'd talk about money, he'd talk about getting along with people. It was wonderful. And he'd talk about life and death, and he'd talk about the Buddha's teachings. So I could endure sitting and thinking about myself for 45 minutes to be allowed to hear the teachings. On one retreat in Joshua Tree, Joseph Goldstein himself, Joseph Goldstein, who I have heard called the meditator's meditator, he laid out the teaching, and how many times did I heard it by then? Many, many times. But I finally heard it. The essential teaching of Vipassana meditation, you note, you note what's going on. Thinking, judging, itching, listening. It was revolutionary because I began doing something on the cushion that you reasonably could call meditation. And I'd been calling what I was doing meditation for a few years by that time. Here's a tip. If you're sitting there and thinking about yourself, there's an alternative. There's, there's something else. There's something else. Because what are we doing when we sit? We're training the mind. We're not indulging the mind. So on that retreat with Joseph, I think I began... Mm, the transformation that's necessary. I love the image of water dripping on a rock. Now in this image, I'm the rock, get it? <laughs> and the water is the teachings, the water is love, the water is companionship, and it is so soft. But it's so 
endless. And it just keeps dripping. Till actually, right, you've walked on a beach and you've seen where holes are worn in rocks. That's me. That I'm going to say that after thousands of hours of meditation, this, it's, it's getting nice and holy. <laughs> there I go bragging again, excuse me. So why am I wearing a rakasu and why am I a Zen teacher in this business of always being in a sitting group? I kept uh, sitting with Zen teachers, and I was a Vipassana student, but the people I was attracted to were Zen teachers. And the short form of that story is I found my teacher, and he was a Zen teacher. I was on a one-month retreat with Suryadas in upstate New York because I really wanted to be a Tibetan practitioner because that's really exciting. And I was taking a walk after the end of practice at night, and I thought about my teacher in Mill Valley, and I thought, oh, no, I'm a Zen student. (laughs) And I am. So is it my karma? I didn't want to be a Zen student. Too austere, too strict. What's with the black robes? You know, but I'm a Zen student. So once I heard Jack and Ed Brown, they gave a talk together, and one of them said that the difference between a Zen student and a Vipassana student is when the end of the meditation period comes, if the bell doesn't ring, the Vipassana students look at their watch and get up and leave, and the Zen students just keep sitting. (laughs) I think a really important difference, actually, is eyes open and eyes closed. I think it makes a huge difference. So in Vipassana, eyes closed, concentration, concentration, watching the mind. Wow, learning about the mind. Zen, eyes open, for me it's more of a communal experience and there's a lot of stuff about connectedness. So another memory of sitting with Joseph just came up, sitting and watching the mind and I had the experience of seeing a thought rise and pass away. And that is life changing. You know the bumper sticker that says, don't believe everything you think? That's what it's talking about. So instead of every damn urge that ever entered my addict mind having to be acted on because it was true, then there arises the possibility of, huh, that was just a thought. Wow. (laughs) And it's gone, and a new thought, desire, impulse is arising now. A thought is just a thought. So the Vipassana technique of noting that I'm familiar with, so powerful in learning about the mind. Zen is a lot about not moving. And as I get it now, uh, (laughs) when we get arranged, we stay that way. And if... um, If my knee starts to hurt, I just investigate the knee hurting and investigate it some more, return to breath and posture, follow the breath, knees calling to me again. I know that when I first started sitting this way, I itched a lot. 
and to not itch is actually pretty profound. And as I understand it now, through not moving my body, I have been learning how to not move my mind. And so when stuff comes at me, I don't, you know, I've heard it said Zen, a wonderful definition of Zen, Zen is an appropriate response. And so if I'm not so caught, if I don't instantly think I have to fix something, and if I've learned that, self, that physically, if I have it in my bones, then maybe my life will not be so extremely chaotic. I have a um, quote from Ani Pema Chodron. I'll admit she's not a Zen student, but she's a pretty good Buddhist. And uh, this I carry, I'm, I work as a hospice chaplain, and I carry this in the front of my binder that has all my patients' information in it. And she says to stay with that shakiness, to stay with a broken heart, with a rumbling stomach, with the feeling of hopelessness and wanting to get revenge. This is the path of true awakening. Sticking with that uncertainty, getting the knack of relaxing in the midst of chaos, learning not to panic, this is the spiritual path. Isn't it wonderful? I also had the opportunity, I sat um, a seven-week retreat up in Gompo Abbey with Ani Pema. That was all right. <laughs> that was great. But I'm a Zen student. <laughs> You might know who Jane Hirschfield is. She's, a, she's one of the few people in this country who has the fortune to be a poet who makes her living by being a poet. Wow, in modern America. She lived down at Tassajara um, when it was first a monastery. And some years ago, Jane summarized all of Buddhism, Buddhist teachings in seven words. She said, everything changes. Everything is connected. Pay attention. Now Jane says, you could, summer, you could drop the first two. You could just say, pay attention, that that's what the Buddha was teaching. But again I say, I've been trying to pay attention for a really long time. I've put post-its all over my apartment that say, pay attention. I've worn little bracelets to remind me to pay, you know, notes on my dashboard. And again, I say, how? Can I have, can I get a mechanism? Suzuki Roshi, in one of my favorite stories in the early days at Tassajara, you know, there's a book, Crooked Cucumber, that talks about the life of Suzuki Roshi. Suzuki Roshi is the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, just amazing teacher, came over and laid it on us and then died really quickly. And it's still, his teaching was so powerful, it's still rolling on. And I have a Zen sitting group Sunday nights in San Carlos, and there's a little flyer for it back on the counter. And I'm proud to say on that flyer, that it's in the tradition of Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, because, wow. So David Chadwick, who wrote the book Crooked Cucumber, 
This is the early days of Tassajara, and once again we have a story where the student raises his hand and he says to the teacher, I've really been trying, but you know, it's kind of complicated, and you have an accent and stuff, and could you kind of sum it up? Could you sum it up? And, and yeah, and everybody in the Zendo laughed except Suzuki Roshi, who took it seriously and he thought about it. And Suzuki Roshi's summary of all the Buddha's teachings was, everything changes. When I was young, my father would say to me, everything changes. And I would think, oh, shut up. <laughs> what do you know? And, you, and I put a lot of energy in just trying to make everything perfect and then have it stay that way. Doesn't that sound like a great life plan? <laughs> well, that's called attachment. That's called the road to suffering. That's called doesn't work because everything changes. And to sit the way we sit, to watch the mind, to have the opportunity to create a fertile field for a thought to arise and pass away and to be calm enough that you can see it happen is to learn that everything changes. To sit next to another person for 90 days in a row is to learn a lot about connection. You either love them or you hate them. We used to, I used to hear about there was Vipassana romance and there was Vipassana vendettas. <laughs> so sometimes on retreat I'd be thinking about myself. Sometimes I'd be thinking about the cute guy on the dishwashing crew who I was sure was my destiny, even though, of course, we'd never exchanged a word. That's called Vipassana romance. And then sometimes I'd be thinking about the person who kept shifting position behind me and you know I was almost enlightened and then he made a noise and interrupted me that's Vipassana Vendetta the connection between us the uh, in Zen we sit sashins usually a week long intense a lot of meditation and it'll happen in maybe day four, day five, where we're in the cream, that I, w that I will directly understand that we're all connected. But I can't hold on to it. I get back in the world and I forget. So I have to keep coming back to the cushion and keep getting reminded. In the sitting group, that I have, which is called Twining Vines. We're reading Joko Beck, who's a wonderful Zen teacher, now passed away. She founded Zen Center of Los Angeles in um, San Diego. And this week, I heard the underlying attitude or knowledge that we are not separate creates a fundamental shift in our emotional life. That knowledge means that whatever happens, we're not especially disturbed by it. And you know, being disturbed by everything was really my basic problem. <laughs> Having the knowledge doesn't mean we don't take care of problems as they arise. However, we no longer inwardly say, oh, this is awful. Nobody else has the troubles I have. It's as if our understanding cancels out such reactions. In my 
I not only work as a chaplain, but I work as a hospice chaplain, which is incredible. When I ordained, I took a vow to be useful. And when I was leaving Zen Center, I said, what am I going to do? Be useful at Starbucks? You give the best years of your life to Zen Center, and then when it's time to leave, you're, hmm. So um, I took the chaplaincy training here, and I recommend it to everybody. And, and sure enough, I've ended up being a hospice chaplain, which is incredible. I had this patient who was, um, uh, quite a few of my patients, uh, their terminal diagnosis is some form of dementia. So what does a chaplain do but talk, right? Blah, 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 blah. And there's, I go and I meet him, and I always, I'll give the patients um, an orientation. I tell them who I am. I remind them of who they are, where they are. I talk about the season, a little weather report, maybe something about what's going on in the world. And then there's not a lot left. When I first was doing this, I tried reading books, and I tried other ways of avoiding the situation. And so this was a man who'd been left in a facility by his family, and they didn't visit. And it was one of my dementia patients where there was someone there. Wow. So one day, as I was sitting with him after that, after talking to him, I was just touching him. And I ask myself, what can I do for this person? What, what might he want? And then doubt arises, of course. And I think, who do you think you are? And what do you think you're doing anyway? And then I thought, well, I'm telling him I'm here. No, that's a little, there's a, there's, that's kind of self-clinging party. I'm here, I'm here. Well, maybe I'm telling him he's here. That's pretty that's where it's getting closer. And then it and then it was clear that what we want is to know that we're connected, right? And that invisible shield goes away and we're connected. It was pretty powerful. So he and I were connected. You and I are connected. And the more we spend time in seated meditation, the more we're going to directly taste that and bring it into our daily lives. And as I was thinking about this talk today, as I was driving around, I drive a lot in my work, and I thought, that's the answer to how to love one another. It's to wake up to the fact that we're connected. That's how to love one another. Wow, that is great. And then I was thinking about someone at work who I'm having trouble with, (laughs) who I was just driving to see. And I thought, well, okay, okay, miss. How about her? Would you like to feel connected to her? Would you like to extend unconditional love to the coworker who you're having trouble with? I thought, you know, I'm really going to try. It's pretty appealing to be selective in these things. 
kind of love strangers, but the people, yeah, you know what. So, and, and I did my best, and I'm, what more can any of us do? So connection. Everything changes. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. And pay attention. Oh, look, no more writing. So I hope for all of us, no matter what our practice looks like, if we never have another chance to do what's called meditation, if all we can do is walk down the street and look at other people, I hope for all of us that we can keep carrying this practice forward, that we can honor this magnificent tradition that has come to us through centuries of people just like us, no different, who wanted to stop suffering and sat down to investigate it. So thank you for your attention, and I'm so happy we have time for questions and answers or comments. Oh, thank you. Hello. Yeah. Would you uh, take the microphone? Oh, the microphone. So as a hospice chaplain, if you don't, uh, after you talk about the weather and whatnot, which takes maybe 20 seconds or something, how do you connect with the residents if you don't, probably don't play music or don't read to them? Do you meditate next to them or something else? I wish there were a formula. Sometimes I come home and I'm so tired and I think I'm so tired because I've been paying attention all day. Because all there is to do is to show up and open my heart completely. I think, um, I think if I had uh, meditated for one hour less in my whole life, I wouldn't be able to do it. I think that I, that's what I bring to the event, is the heart of meditation. My Christian brothers and sisters bring faith and they bring prayer. I get so jealous because they have this thing they can do called prayer. A Buddhist chaplain, I do pray when I'm asked, but essentially all I have to give is my, is my zazen heart and try to discern what will be helpful, or at least appropriate in that event. And it's always different. A lot of my patients are still talking and have good cognitive faculties. And so you just start by saying, hey, how are you? And then you see where it goes. And you keep showing it up. Keep showing up for it and never, ever phone it in. And then when you get home, you're really tired. If you're curious about it, you should take the Buddhist chaplaincy training here at IMS. It's superb. Do people just ask for the chaplain, and then when the Buddhist chaplain shows up, are they 
taken aback or <laughs> so a big part of my training was to learn how to carry that to be a Buddhist swimming in a Christian pool um, I uh, and the words that I have for it now are that my practice brings me to the bedside and from that point on it's about them and what they believe and what they need so sometimes I tell people that I'm a Buddhist and sometimes not and it's a very subtle kind of discernment because it can end the conversation and really I can't be helpful if I just got thrown out although sometimes Giving them the power to throw you out of the room is the kindest thing you can do. There's that too. But so it's, um, and I find in this work, I'm really surprised at how many people um, accept the chaplain and accept visits. I, get, I don't get very many refusals. When you work in a hospi hospital, and I did a one year residency in a hospital kind of trying to sell chaplaincy services from bed to bed. It's really something. And especially for an introvert. I like this work where I get to get back in my car, listen to Bob Dylan, drive around, get refreshed, and then go to the next. But mostly I just call and my, I say, my name's Ren and I'm the chaplain and I'm, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And mostly people say, yeah. And then I try to remember, drop it. Not about me. Damn. What does that shirt say? Is that an is that an Enzo on your shirt, madam? No. Oh, okay. Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Oh, nice. That's a good practice. It is. Uh, could you flesh out a little more about what happened with the woman today? Like the difficult person. The difficult person. Or, unless there isn't anything more to say, I don't know. It was bringing that, just, just to remember to stop and say to myself, her too is magnificent. To not walk into the meeting already knowing that she doesn't get my love. That this strong, strong habit that we all have of creating separation. Life is so difficult. Life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? Why is it so easy to be unkind? And so at least for the first few minutes for me to have it somewhere in my mind that she gets my love too. The fear is obviously of being vulnerable of losing, and it takes a lot of courage. It takes the courage of thousands of hours of seated meditation to be able to give that a try and find out that it's not fatal. To not win is actually not fatal. Don't you think? Yeah. So I'm going to keep trying with her. <sighs> <laughs> There's a wonderful book I had um, by someone named Thaddeus Golas that was called The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. Yeah, 
And Thaddeus Golas, one of the phrases from that book was, go beyond reason to love. It is safe. It is the only safety. And another, who was it we thought needed to be loved? It's not really the easy, fabulous people who need the love as much as the really difficult people who are isolating themselves by their own behavior. Those are the ones who need our love. Who was it we thought needed to be loved? Which is why we have to stick together, because it's so hard. It's hard. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Thank you. Uh, when you were talking about the transition after a few years of going from thinking about yourself to um, really noticing, just noting, uh, noting, thinking, listening, etc., did it happen all at once or did it happen gradually? I mean, I'm still at the stage where. I, I do it maybe only five, ten minutes out of the whole meditation. That's great. I, it probably was gradual. I probably had been hearing the instructions. Because every time you sit a ten-day Vipassana retreat, they take you through the same instructions. So some of that had been coming through. But there was, and, and I... Uh, at least partially attribute it to the way Joseph teaches. I remember that one moment where a light bulb went off where I said, oh, that's it. And what a gift to give me something else to do with my mind, something else other than think about myself. And the next step of that was learning to be gentle. It's a gentle noting. It's not... Oh my God, you were judging again. You're impossible. It's just judging. So it's back to the water dripping on the rock. Five or ten minutes. Wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? For five or ten minutes, you were freed from the bondage of self. Wonderful. And the Buddha said, strive on diligently. <laughs> Two minutes. The Buddha's final words. Do you know about this? The Buddha's disciples came to the Buddha and they said, Oh, Buddha, you're dying. What was it that you said? What? And the Buddha said, and the Buddha said, Don't just, don't sort of believe it because I said so. Investigate for yourself. Learn it in your own heart. Sit down. Get that information to move this, this impossible 18 inches from the head to the heart. The Buddha said, sit down. Check it out for yourself. So it's wonderful to be here. You all just look like angels. I appreciate your attention so much. And I'll say again, if you want to, San Carlos, 5 o'clock Sunday nights, Zen, and there's a flyer on the counter. Thank you very much. <laughs>